Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Social media tools developed in Silicon Valley can be used for illiberal purposes, often putting the most vulnerable groups at risk. Afsana Rigaud is a researcher and advocate concerned with issues of law, technology, LGBTQ, refugee, and human rights, a senior researcher at Article 19 with a focus on the Middle East and Northern Africa, an affiliate at the Berkman Klein Center, and an advisor at the Cyber Law Clinic at Harvard. Afsana is the author of the recently published report, Digital Crime Scenes, the Role of Digital Evidence in the Persecution of LGBTQ People in Egypt, Lebanon, and Tunisia. The report uncovers how police use technology to target, harass, and arrest those in the LGBTQ community. Meticulously researched, the report also includes recommendations to tech firms on what they can do to help the community, and Afsana is now working on a set of design principles that could help the developers of technology applications and platforms think through the potential harms and avoid creating tools for authoritarians. I caught up with Afsana last month. So we're talking on the occasion of the publication of a new report that you've put together, Digital Crime Scenes, the Role of Digital Evidence in the Persecution of LGBTQ People in Egypt, Lebanon, and Tunisia. How long have you been working on this? This, um, I mean, the work in general, the broader work in general, kind of tracks back to around 2015, 2016, so it's a while back. But this particular report itself has taken about two years to complete, but it came out earlier this year. But it was a a work in progress because working on it um, during a pandemic and trying to get access to a number of things that and like court files in some of the countries that weren't collated or available at the point or identifying the right folks to speak to took, took a bit of time. Selfies, sexts, texts, dating apps, probably most of the people who might listen to this have engaged in some aspect of one of these practices uh, in their romantic or their, their sex life. But you look at how in these three particular countries in the Middle East and North Africa, this behavior has become dangerous. Yeah. And honestly, I have to point out that even though, um, I looked at these case study countries, it's not unique to them or even in the region. Um, it's just really based around my expertise and connection in these countries and the fact that it's a issue in these specific countries and different layers and levels. But exactly in when it comes to the prosecution, and I mean in like a court system framework of something as fragile and intimate and complex as identity, it was really um, fundamental to understand how that becomes charged in a court of law and sentence. So um, this research shows that anything from your texting, your contact lists, website browsing, pictures taken, selfies, dating apps you use, chat apps, sort of your kind of digital existence and identity has kind of become this mosaic of prosecuting identity in these cases. This is essentially being used as a way to crack down on the LGBTQ community. Exactly. 
in recent years and what continues to be the use of colonial laws and penal laws in a lot of these countries and in general morality-based laws and they prosecute the queer community in very different ways with very wide-ranging and um, broad laws that um, sometimes don't even directly um, criminalize the community but have been used against them and with their rise in dependence of digital evidence, the type of evidence that this report is looking into, that is kind of linked to the rise of this sort of policing of queer communities. We're seeing now, um, as is the case with Egypt, the use of cyber crimes and telecommunication laws to hone in this uh, increasing method of prosecuting queerness based on um, digital data and digital evidence. You point out that this evidence is amassed from a variety of different sources, including apps that are operated by big tech companies, uh, everything from from Grindr, which folks might expect, uh, Who's Here, which is a geolocation-based app, also WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat. How do these big tech firms play a role in either helping authorities to create these evidence collections or maybe thwarting them? As you can see in the report, the sort of reliance on these tools become really fundamental because it's, you know, if, if you're seeing it from a prosecutor or the police's um, uh, sort of perspective in this context, they're going to go for the thing that's most used by individuals and has the most sort of um, uh, sort of backlog of information on there for them to look for. Uh, and so what becomes really apparent in these cases and what um, I've been trying to highlight with a lot of the companies that we're seeing, and I like, like you mentioned, some of our most major, most established um, companies is that there is and has been in the past a broad sort of pattern of creating tools and technologies in contexts, for example, in the US, in Europe, in the West, let's say this sort of broadly the Silicon Valley mindset, and then expanding and scaling in contexts that um, they weren't designed for. And in those cases, um, the folks who are most of the margins, often those who are most criminalized, see this sort of weaponization of these technologies against them because uh, a lot of like the very simple harm reduction methods or tools or features haven't been placed on there. And so they become like a goldmine for these sort of cases. And so the sort of their role becomes in effect, they become a tool and as the title of the report suggests crime scene for individuals to be uh, investigated and prosecuted on. And in part, at the end of the report, there's this um, list of recommendations that come in. So the format of this recommendations um, came from previous work we had done when um, at Article 19 as leading projects with loads of local groups and local experts about how folks were being identified. So like, you know, the process before the prosecution. And that was in Iran. Lebanon and Egypt and uh, understanding what the community I mean in this case I'm quote-unquote users the community wanted to see in terms of safety and security features on these apps so that they could continue to use them and exist on them and have community but also be safer 
um, with sort of options provided by the tools themselves. You know, this concept that the safety and security of folks shouldn't solely always um, be honest on themselves. These companies become responsible and liable in these things. So like at the end of this report, there are these recommendations that are pretty um, harm reduction based and practical, not all tech based, mostly are like in terms of features that the frontline employers that I was interviewing echoed in terms of these are the types of features that could be put in place to perhaps reduce the amount of data gathering that's being done in these tools. Um, and I think Another thing to point out that comes out in this report that some of the previous work and research I was involved with didn't highlight as much because it was, like I mentioned, it was more about the identification element and was that previously when we were talking about these arrests and prosecutions, the focus was always on queer dating apps because in, for example, in Egypt, the sort of uh, entrapment methods by police and their like sting operations always used to uh, uh, and still do focus on these queer dating apps to identify individuals you know existing on a queer dating app like Grindr or Hornet or Scruff or uh, any of the other ones in their eyes is already a confession in itself it's seen as a crime within itself but in this prosecution framework it's a whole array Right. It's it's, um, it, you know, if we're thinking from like a device search or a, a interrogation perspective, they have free reign on the phone. They're going to go into first something like your chats, like WhatsApp, then cross reference that with if you have another dating app then cross reference that with pictures they might find in your um, uh, sort of camera roll. Um, and, you know, I, I've seen cases I mentioned in there where like names saved and contact lists were used or the SIM card was being used to match with the phone number on WhatsApp and so on. So I think the sort of implication of and the sort of responsibility of the companies and this becomes a lot broader when we're seeing it from the court side of things. It's like, and... In, in an effort to document all of this, to highlight all of this, uh, I was hoping this becomes also a guide of how we can reverse engineer some of the way um, there is this reliance on these tools to bring in some mitigation safety methods for folks being impacted. You've mentioned this just now, but I want to kind of bring it out a little bit that the searches of these digital devices, the intercept of these communications, the use of false profiles to engage people. Mm -hmm. um, this is all part of not just a digital evidence gathering, but also you describe a range of incredibly oppressive other forms of police investigation of LGBTQ communities. Yeah, exactly. Um, so trying to understand the lead up to the prosecution, uh, you also see that there are these sort of street level based profiling um, and searches that happens, which is often like either the police are patrolling, profile an individual based on how they look and present, or they have informants with them that take them to uh, known queer spots, reports a lot of the times that happen 
by neighbourhoods or individuals themselves, so not law enforcement per se, or reports that happen uh, into community to the police that leads them to individuals. And another really important method that came out that leads to some of this stuff is also these parallel or like these opportunistic prosecutions where individuals go into and this, this is really quite prominent in Lebanon and Tunisia, we say, go into a police uh, precinct station to report something, or they're taken in for a very separate crime. And immediately, whether it's based on prior knowledge of the police or their sort of profiling of the individual, their device is searched, and a parallel or a, a additional case for their identity is brought against them, even if they're reporting an abuse or attack against themselves. And then on the other hand, you have the sort of fake profiles and the entrapments that happen. So that's a lot more um, sort of operationalized as a systematic thing in Egypt. So Egyptian law enforcement system isn't very shy about talking about this because it's it's kind of often even put into like newspaper articles and so on. A group called the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights and Badaya had documented like the sort of publicization of these things by the police too, where they um, create fake profiles on different apps and often queer dating apps create this chat the chat log becomes very important because the chat log in itself becomes used in the court and so like maintaining that conversation is really important exchanging pictures setting up a sort of meeting spot and arresting people and then something similar to this in the interviews and some of the documentation investigation I was doing was popping up in Tunisia which was very concerning and so it wasn't so much the entrapments per se but there were uh, reports whether from the clients of the lawyers we were talking to or others of police using fake profiles on places like Facebook and more recently on Grindr to have a sort of track of individuals so have this sort of monitoring element of individuals and as soon as this individual became um, sort of entangled with the legal system somehow, they already had information on them. And this happened, um, I, I was seeing a lot in the smaller towns. So, you know, the smaller towns where the police know who's who, where, who's doing what. That there was a concerning element that I really wanted to highlight in the report is that the sort of more established, uh, organised methods that we're seeing in sort of Egypt are easily being mimicked elsewhere and that the sort of Tunisia case is like uh, indicated that these tactics that are seen as working are being picked up elsewhere. You do have, as you say, these recommendations um, that encompass ideas for tech companies about what types of capabilities or, or uh, uh, features they might be able to introduce that would perhaps protect these communities. But even in the lead in to these recommendations, you have a sort of general sense among your interviewees that tech companies don't care about them. Yeah, it was, you know, part of the interview um, questioning was, do you think companies are responsible in these cases? And sort of some of the quotes I put in there is like the continued discussion in that is that 
Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the folks I spoke to had never interacted with any of the companies uh, or spoken to, and some of them had reached out. Others had, for example, because um, Grindr had been used and has been used by police in these sort of cases for a long time. They have become more and more um, intertwined in bringing in measures and being connected to the community to understand some of the cases and bring in in quite innovative ways of providing safety for individuals that we worked on with them since 2017. But in general, they had rarely had access to these companies and there was this sense of we're so far away outside of like where they're functioning, they don't care about us. And I really wanted to highlight that, even though I know there are certain companies that are becoming more and more engaged in this, but the general mood is that you are part of what's going on in this context. We are carrying with limited resources, limited funds, with varied, varied and very high risks, even for the lawyers in this context, the sort of way of trying to address these cases. Where are you? sort of context that's happening. So yeah, I I wanted to bring in that element of not enough is being done. So you've mentioned that you've had some positive conversations, at least with Grindr. Has there been any other response from tech firms to your report? Yeah, so um, the Grindr issue uh, and the the work we did with Grindr uh, started with the previous work I'd done with Article 19 and this other report um, that we worked on and it's continuing. And since this report, I'd been working with the WhatsApp folks because um, you've seen a report, WhatsApp is a very prominent tool that's being relied upon in a lot of these cases. 100% of the interviews mentioned WhatsApp um, as a chat-based tool. Uh, Facebook Messenger is very popular in Tunisia, but the other two countries is pretty much all WhatsApp. And it comes up in the court files, and you can understand why, because immediately the police go to WhatsApp chats, search keywords to find folks uh, and find evidence on folks. So I've been talking to them, and... Uh, a few months back, they, uh, previously they already had this option for disappearing messages that they introduced, but it was for seven days. And in conversations, uh, was this co- conversation about more options are needed. Uh, seven days is still one. Most don't know about it. Two, um, it's still a huge period of time, which the backlog can be created in a signal format of more options for disappearing messages it becomes really important to increase that optionality and they did uh, of course work with their teams and stuff and bring those options in and we're going to continue to work with them to try and bring in other safety features because honestly a lot of these a lot of these features become really fundamental in trying to navigate what's going on. The laws and kind of challenging and changing the laws themselves are years, um, the work that will take years to kind of try and complete. So um, these specific changes become quite important for some of the safety methods we need. You know, I was struck looking at these recommendations that in in some ways, even though they're devised as a way to think through the needs of LGBTQ people in the Middle East and Northern Africa, they could be potentially useful to anyone living in an oppressive regime. So you've got 
you know, things like the uh, ability to unsend messages or make messages more ephemeral, um, double pin secret folders, a self-destruct, a panic button. Uh, if in fact you are detained to be able to wipe your device very quickly, direct communication line with lawyers, screenshot warnings, more anonymity, even little features like not saving photos directly into a gallery as a default setting. There's a lot here. I don't know. Do you think of these as potentially useful features in, in other contexts as well? Yeah, actually, I'm glad you asked that because the um, other element that comes into some of this work is um, something I've been trying to develop based on what we achieved with um, the other companies and what the documentation shows is that bringing in these sort of changes and these sort of features for those most at risk and most marginalized and contexts are often outside the US and EU um, contexts of design and development um, is a really great metric for how you protect everyone. Um, a lot of these features, like you mentioned, are very useful for folks in these contexts in repressive or um, oppressive environments, but also everywhere. You know, the app cloaking option that Grindr implemented uh, a while ago based on this research, which was based on one of the case main case studies was Syri- queer Syrian refugees in Lebanon at police and army checkpoints. So when their um, device is initially looked through, the logo of Grindr doesn't uh, instigate a further search. So the logo, and um, now you're able to turn it into a calculator or a calendar uh, or something kind of quite innocent looking. And um, we know that this is like very broadly used now, but Grindr quickly saw, and it was kind of um, something that we knew we, we couldn't predict. Grindr quickly saw that this is something that everybody wanted globally. And they uh, sort of pushed that out as a free feature internationally. It's the same with so many of the other security features. So in this thing I'm developing called Design from the Margins, uh, it's this conversation that when you design for those most at risk, most marginalized, you're creating something better for everyone. Even the pins, something something like the, the sort of double pins or the double skin pins uh, that we could think about it for these contexts interrogations and so on they become so important but you could be in the u.s and you someone might want to look at your kid might want to look at your phone and you want to have a version of the phone that has all of your stuff that you don't want your kid to like accidentally delete and a version of like that interface that's like friendly for them to look at so um when we look at it in a way that yes we're protecting those most at risk but we're creating something better for everyone. That sort of metric um, brings in not just creativity, but at this point, creativity and innovation that doesn't trample over those who are taking the brunt of the risks and the weaponization of some of this technology. What's next for you? I mean, this this was a major endeavor, uh, over 150 pages of material, enormous amount of research. I count more than 600 footnotes. What what's next for you? Oh, good question. Um, I, I'm obviously going to be continuing my work with Article 19. We're actually continuing similar research in eight countries in the region, 
and trying to expand to kind of bring these perspectives and issues more to light. I'm going to be continuing to push this design from the margins perspective to push that we don't see our cases as cases as edge anymore, never to be framed as edge cases anymore, as kind of more central cases. And I'm hoping to continue to document these um, lesser seen or lesser known um, impacts of technology on the most vulnerable to bring in some corporate responsibility frameworks around this. So I think I, I'm just continuing down the same line. I, I get tunnel vision with a lot of the work I do. <laughs> and sometimes it's good. Sometimes it means I've spent two and a half years writing a report that's 150 pages, which is great too, but it takes a lot out. Um, so I can't see that's changing, uh, except, you know, finding resources and stuff to do this type of work is often difficult. So I'm hoping to work on that element too. I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Press.